scripted a month And tonight he will be sharing his story and steps one and two. And that's Dennis R. from Freehold. Hi, everybody. My name is Dennis Robbins, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Dennis. I want to thank Mike. Thanks a lot, Mike, for asking me to come up. And I want to thank the Caritas Message Group of Alcoholics Anonymous for the privilege of being here. I also want to thank those guys that took the trip over to me from Freehold and, and Lady. My two buddies that live up in this area. And, uh, all those that I, that I do know. All those that I'm going to meet while I'm here. My, my home group is the Community Special Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe it's the best group in Alcoholics Anonymous. Service group. They believe in carrying the message of love and hope to people in institutions. That's where I make my home. My sobriety day is September 27, 1984. And um, I'm just really just happy to be I, I kind of feel at home here. Real, real, real comfortable feeling right I'm going to try to tell you in a general way what it used to be like and what happened and what it's like today. I've always been fascinated by booze since I was a little boy. My parents used to take me to my office house in, in, in Brooklyn or in the Bronx. And I used to watch people drink. And drinking just fascinated me. You know, I was kind of a kid who kind of observed people. I was always watching people. And I was also an ordinary kid who was told to stay in the room. I was always the one that came back out. And after a while, they get tired of telling me to stay where I was. And I would sit up on their laps. And I'd see that in red eyes and the stinking breath, and I just was right in my own. I just loved it. But what used to fascinate me was when they started drinking. You know, they would be friendly, they would be talking. And then after quite a few drinks, their crescendo, their voices would start to raise up. It was almost like they would start to shout at each other. And what I learned today, they were trying to talk each other. <laughs> and what really came about after that, not too soon after that, maybe an argument would break out. And maybe not too soon after that, we'll fight. And it just fascinated me as a little boy just to watch that. And I couldn't wait to get my hands on this stuff. Well, so I started drinking early. I, I used to pick up drinks when I was about nine, ten years old after parties. My mother would be sleeping. I used to sip out the glasses. My father turned his back and I would drink out of beer cans. And that's basically where it was from. One of the things that kind of fascinates me today, I didn't think it was a problem then, but I know it was the cause of my underlying is I believe ever since I first began to think I wanted what I wanted when I wanted. That was just my nature. You couldn't tell me a thing. I liked excitement too. My excitement just turned me on. I preferred living in the Bronx. Uh, being, at, being in the Bronx at my godmother's house more than being in Queens in a nice, real quiet neighborhood. Both of my mother and father had fantastic jobs. And they wanted the very best for me. They sent me to the best schools. They dressed me the best. I had everything you could ask for. Another thing that I noticed about me and it's very characteristic of my behavior is that was never satisfied. Never satisfied. If I got a new scooter, 
After a while, if I saw another guy with a scooter with a box and a 2x4 and two skates nailed to it, I wanted that. Never satisfied. Never satisfied. I was a good kid in school. I got good grades. I shouldn't say I was good kids. I got good grades, but I was uh, I was the type of kid who was always getting sent down to the principal. You know, my mother and father would always come up to school, and uh, especially my mother would always come to school, and the principal would say, all right, we'll let him go, and I got away with a lot. I started getting a little older, and about 15 years old, um, I started getting into trouble. Um, a friend of mine was carrying a weapon on and we were two black kids running around the neighborhood in Jamaica, by Jamaica High School. The cops saw us and uh, he panicked and started running and I ran with him. And they got out the car and chased us and he dropped something on the curb and they found it. And the cop went on both sides, both sides of his with a stick and uh, took us both down to the precinct. Now what was incredible is that they found this guy had a zip gun. I don't know what happened to him, but my mother came and got me out of that piece of that. And from that point on, I thought I was involved. I thought I was involved. At that point, uh, my grades dropping and starting to get in trouble a lot. She thought it'd be better I moved upstate to a place called Rome, New York. 50,000 people, all they did was move the problem from one area to the other. That's all they were doing. I got up there and I started meeting people just like me. People like to drink. But I was gifted. God gave me a lot of gifts. I ran track. I played football. I went out for sports. And drinking was to be ruinous in my performance. Just to illustrate a little bit more of my thinking at about 16 years old, on the football team, on the sidelines, if I wasn't playing, I was rooting for the other team to win. <laughs> now, now, if that's not a description of a large ego, I don't know what is. But eventually, I did wind up, uh, wind up playing a lot. And when I was in the game, of course, I wanted to win. I wanted everybody to win. One of the things up there, too, I met my girlfriend. And she, uh, she played the piano in church because I went to church every Sunday. See, that was my mother's solution for me. They thought that that would be the thing that would straighten me out. And, and I, I, I went. I went every Sunday. And I met her, and um, I went home with her, and uh, we became good friends. And I noticed one thing her mother drank. Now, I don't know about here, but I know up there, kids can go to the liquor store. You're 16, you can go to the liquor store and pick up booze for your parents if they call ahead to get it. And she would bring back that liquor to her mother. And be, uh, Wilson's and Four Roses. You know, she would give me a sip of that. It would burn me from the time it hit my lips to the time it hit the bottom of my belt. And um, I didn't like the way it tasted. Whatever she offered to me, I never said no. I never said no. You know, um, I started to start to go downhill slowly, especially in sports. At 15, my, about 15 and a half years old, 16, somewhere around there, my, we had a track meet in Watertown. And the night before, a friend of mine named Nikki handed me a bottle of wine. And I'm a gulper. I don't know what it's like to sip nothing. Even today, I have to watch the way I drink water and soda because I'm not careful, I can drown myself. You know, I, I, just, I just drink fast. You know, and uh, he gave me that and it went down and it was warm and I felt mellow. And 
it's like in the evening and the lights are looking different. And uh, I remember smiling, you know, I remember smiling. I told him, yes, it was so funny. And I, I said, man, this feels good. Give me some more of that stuff. And I drank some more. And right after that, I, I threw up. I threw up. My body had rejected. Now, I eventually became a perpetual puke. I threw up a lot. Of I, I, thought, I thought drinking and, 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 and throwing up was synonymous. I thought if you did one, the other was bound to happen. I had a track meet the next day up in Watertown, and um, we got on the bus and we rode up there. And uh, man, I was nursing a hangover that you would never believe. Got left at the blocks in the sprints, messed up the relay team. And my coach asked me what was the matter, and I began to lie. I told him, I said, I didn't get no sleep last night. What I had to really tell him was I was nursing a hangover from Rome up to, uh, up to Watertown. Uh, it just took me down. It just started to take me down. I graduated from high school. I went out to a school out in Indiana, a small school out in Muncie. I was 17 years old, drinking age was 21. I managed to drink just as much as everybody else. I got involved with people out there that drank the fraternity, people who were a lot older than me. I went out for football and I got cut. I went out for track. I didn't perform well. I was chasing women all over the state of Indiana. I would call my mother from uh, South Bend. I'd call her from Indianapolis. She said, well, I thought you were in school. And uh, what really wound up happening after the first year, I flunked out. And when I got home, my mother told me I wasn't no damn good. She wasn't going to waste any more money on me. And that's basically what I wanted to hear. I got my first major job at Bendix Aviation in Utica, New York. I was about 18 and a half, almost 19. I was a metallurgical lab technician. I got paid every two weeks, and I made a lot of money for a kid my age. But if I can look back now, I had the problem right then, because four days prior to payday, I would be asking the cafeteria manager if I could get my lunch on credit. I never had no money. I was always broke. You know, my, my, my days and nights consisted of drinking in the six bars of Liberty Street, Utica, driving the 21 miles back to Romeo, drinking in the top hat and circle bar, losing watches, getting in the fights, the same as Sammy, over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. I went down to New York to visit my mother, coming back on the, on the New York State Freeway. I found myself on an exit ramp, doing about 45 miles an hour. The car was rolling. I remember holding the wheel of the car was rolling. I came to. Now, I didn't go into any ravine. I didn't hit no trees. I didn't hit no rocks. And I don't know no car that drives itself. And I have to tell you that, but looking back, I'm here by the grace of God. I literally passed out at the wheel. Literally went to sleep. Now, mothers against drunk driving like me to do qualification, but I always drove with half a pint of blackberry brandy and vodka because I wanted the trip to go by mellow. See, I like driving with like, like being mellow. You know, made the trip go by fast, by better. But see, what I didn't realize is I was getting in a lot of accidents. I was getting a lot of speeding tickets. I was getting a lot of trouble with my driving. Alcohol was the cause of it. I got laid off from from Bendix Aviation, I started working for a phone company in 1963. And I, upstate, you know, when you live in a small town, to get excited, you go to Albany, you go to Syracuse, you go to big cities, because that's what they would think. And, um, you know, you're going in, you're going in the bars, you're drinking constantly, and you're getting drunk, you're blacking out. You wake 
taken up to strange places with different people and strange people, people you don't know, and things happen. I transferred down to New York, and um, I was on a job, and two big tall men came on my job, and they asked my boss, where's Dennis Roberts? He said, he's right over there. They said, they said, son, can you come with us for a few minutes? We'd like to talk to you outside. So I went outside, and I talked to him. And they said, you know, we have a, uh, a warrant out for you. I said, you have a warrant out for me? They said, yeah, it's a warrant. We're not going to put you in jail. We just want you to answer the warrant. Go up to Auburn and ask. If you don't, we're going to come back and we're going to get you and go lock you up. So I went up to Auburn. I knew what I was going for. It was a paternity warrant. I went up to the courthouse and uh, the social worker and the girl were there and brought the baby out. When I looked at that baby, it was like I was looking at me. And I told that woman, I said, you know, that's your boyfriend's kid. That's not mine. Always in denial. Always blaming somebody else. So finally, the uh, social worker asked me what I wanted to do. And uh, I talked to her. We wanted to put the baby in for adoption. When I got back, into, when I got back down to New York, my mother told me I ought to be ashamed of myself. She said, you weren't raised that way. You were raised better than that. What's the matter with you? And all you had to do was just give me one drink. And I didn't care what she said. I didn't care what she, what she doing. It didn't matter to me. I didn't want nothing coming between me and my drink and me and my body. I went to a service in 1966. And the only thing I talked about the service, I went to jump school before Benning in 1967. I couldn't drink there, couldn't drink in the jump area. But when I left there, I went to Fort Bragg for my training. The guys would come back to Vietnam, they were in the barracks, drinking booze, smoking dope, and I was right in there with them. You know, to this day, I wonder how I made revenue, because I stayed drunk. I used to go to the EM club and drink my heart out. Then when I got promoted, I went to the NCO club and drank even more. I don't, know how, I don't know how I got through the training I got through. I really don't know how I did it, but I did it. You know, when you're young, I guess you can, you can, you know, you can do these things, but I don't know today how I managed, managed to get through that. I went to Vietnam in 1968. I had married that young lady that played the piano, and uh, that was so that we can get some more money while I was going to Vietnam. I mean, I loved it, but it was also a financial thing. You know, they, they pay you more money when you, when, when you marry. I went to Vietnam in 1968, June. And, uh, the only thing I want to talk about Vietnam is that when I was up in the Corps up in the mountains with the uh, Montagnards, those were mainly our troops because I was in Special Forces. We trained Montagnards and, and, uh, and the Vietnamese uh, Special Forces and that. The Montagnards used to make rice wine. And, uh, they used to make it in tall vats. Now remember, before we went over there, they said, don't drink the water. Don't drink the water. If you drink the water, you have to purify it with iodine tablets. Well, I never dropped no iodine tablets in that rice wine because that's where you got that water from, from the rivers. Now, guys were getting medevac with hepatitis and all kind of stuff. And the only thing that stuff did, I hope they never report that stuff over there because it would make a lot of you sick. Because it made me sick. It used to give me violent headaches. It used to give me diarrhea. I would almost drink it and urinate out my behind at the same time. <laughs> it, it, was, it was almost that instant. 
You know, and I would tell them, now I'm get angry. I almost want to shoot him. And, and, and you know, and, and the thing about it, well, here's me understanding. Whenever I found out they would make another batch, I would go back and say, give me some more of that stuff. Always think it'd be different next time. I drank a lot of Jack Daniels over there, uh, Jack Daniels and Coke. Used a lot of lime juice. We didn't have no fruit over there, so we had to use juice. I did a lot of dextrosanthinamines. When I was out in the field, I did not drink. Now, where I was, I had to stay alert. So I used a lot of stew to stay up. Came back, and I remember going out. One of the guys on my team had gotten killed, and uh, my team sergeant asked me to go out there with him to bring him back, and he was going to take over the operation. And, uh, I remember when he came off operation, he said to me, he came, he came to the team house, he said, come here, I want to talk to you. And he said, you should pray every day for the rest of your life, because you shouldn't be here. I don't know how you people in that helicopter survived. We just knew you were going to crash, because it was raining, a lot of wind was blowing, and uh, But Bruce made me forget that. Bruce made me forget that. I came home in 1969, my girlfriend had transferred from the phone company in Utica down to New York, my wife mother. We lived in a beautiful development in, in Left Rock City in Queens. I mean, really, really beautiful in 69. I mean, immaculate. Friends of mine used to ask me, well, how, how do you want up in there? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I just want up in there. You know, it seems as though when anybody tried to do me any good, I just went the opposite way. I, I had a problem accepting good. You know, I um, I started not to really like the neighborhood because it was um, there weren't too many of us there, and none of the bars. We had a local bar there on the corner called Heads and Tails, but there wasn't that much activity. It was quiet. You know, it was it was quiet and sedate. All you hear was glass tinklings. I wanted noise. You know, so what I did was I used to go down to Avenue D a little bit more projects with my friends. I was in the service bureau, Denver Stein, Brooklyn, and I'd go in the bars, man, where to hear yourself you had a shot. You know, and, uh, and I, I, the, the more noise there was, the more activity, and jukeboxes, as high as it can go, and, and people running each other, I just loved the atmosphere. It just turned me on. You know, I just loved it. I could I could have moved in there. You know, so much, you know and... Uh, I remember she used to tell me, well, you know, Friday night is your night out. And I'm going to let you have that because you are right. And then it became Saturday night, Sunday night. You know, at times I forgot I was even married. I would just go out and just continue drinking and just continue with my friends. Now, I wasn't really doing anything. I wasn't really cavorting at that time. You know, but when I came home one day, my wife looked at me and she said, you know, you know, she never really called me Dennis that much. She had a lot of names for me. And I don't know. They, they weren't they weren't nice. But one day but one day she hit me with something that really chased me to the dictionary. She said, You know, you're a whore monger. And I said, What is a I don't know what the hell that is. She said, That's just what you are. Well she thought I was out there running around the street with all the women. So I looked it up in the dictionary and I said, Well if that's what you believe, then that's what I'm gonna do. You know, and um, I would go out and come back. Sometimes I would stay home. Now if you have two people in the same house and they're both drinking, you got problems. Uh, she used to drink her, her Johnny Walker Red, and I'd drink my vodka. And she'd be over there by the bar, just minding her business. And she'd sit in front of the TV, minding mine. And it seemed like the more she drank, the more vocal she got. Now, I was just the opposite. The more I drank, the quieter I got. 
And I would sit there watching TV, minding my own business. Now, she would bring up stuff that happened months and years ago. You know, she would just like start, hey, not hey, goodness, but hey, and a lot of other words I don't want to say for the podium. Don't you remember this? Don't you remember that? And you know, my mother used to tell me, you know, when people argue with you, just be quiet. Because after a while, they'll burn themselves out. Well, she didn't. You know, it seemed like the quieter I got, the more angry she got. And then she started throwing things. And even to this day, I don't like nobody throwing nothing. You know, and uh, after a while, the cops would come to the door, there'd be physical, verbal fights. You know, things I'm not proud of. But that's what alcohol does to two people who are drinking. I remember times when I used to get on the phone and, you know, she used to tell her brothers, you know, I'm down in. And I used to get on the phone and invite her brothers down here by plane. I'll pay your way down here. Now, you know, when you're drinking and, and, and you're feeling good, you know, and, and I was, I, I was, a, you know, all these airborne things came back and I felt like I was, you know, king of the world. Now, Sonny and Leon were both about 6'3". You know, if they got that plane can they probably would have wiped me out. You know, but my mind would, if you don't like, come on down here. You know, that's what alcohol did. That's just what alcohol did. You know, I was uh, one day watching Matthew McGuire. I had secretly got an apartment in the, in the, in the same complex in a different building. And, uh, I walked out of it. I left it. Now, I was sober a little bit over two years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was to go back and make a minister and her family. Because when you involve these steps in your life, the truth comes out. The very truth of your being comes out. And I remember talking to her mother, and her mother told me, she said, you know, you almost caused my daughter a nervous breakdown. And I never want to hurt anybody like that ever again. See, I didn't think I was bothering anybody like that. If I wasn't there, how was I bothering you? You know, but when people are worried about you, they cause the stress. See, these things never entered my mind because I was too self-centered. Too self-absorbed with me and what I wanted, what I wanted. That behavior really magnified when I drank. And of course, the breakup of that marriage was not a fault. It was my fault. I told him about that. And even though I was married to somebody else at the time, her mother invited me back up to Rome to visit them anytime I was back in, in, in the area. And I owe that to Alcoholics Anonymous. I owe that to Alcoholics Anonymous. And even to this day, she's retired from the phone. Maybe every once in a while I hear from her. Maybe once a year, twice a year, she'll tell me how she's doing it. You know, I married somebody else. I met my present wife, and I put her through 10 years of living hell. 10 years of living hell. In 1976, my mother called me on the telephone, and I had an uncle that drank a lot, my uncle Freddie. Now, if you're looking, if you know Freddie, I'm Freddie. Only Freddie's six foot three. We look almost identical. And he used to drink, and he used to do his business up in the Bronx, and I used to tell him, you know, you ought to, you ought to stop it, because it's going to wind up killing me. And he would have me go to the liquor store and buy him booze, and I'd come back and just get just as drunk as he was. And I'd be telling him, you need to cut it out, Freddie. And I'd be just as drunk, if not drunk. And my mother called me at work, and she said, I got a call from one of his neighbors that his door was open. So I left, I left work. Very casual. I went to OTB and played a few horses, went to the bar and got a few drinks. 
Mosey on up to the Bronx. I got up there. He lived in a walk-up. When I got to the second floor and I saw the door was was ajar, I walked through the flat at the end of the hallway. I saw my uncle on his knees, butt naked, reaching for a telephone. He had hemorrhaged blood all over the place. Alcohol. I remember when the body people came to get him. I remember, and they really take their time too in New York. They don't, they're not going to rush to do that. And I had to sit there with that body for a, few, for a couple of hours and I was just devastated. Because I loved him a lot. He was my idol. He, had, he loved to drink. He had a lot of women. He, he, just, he, was, he, he did everything illegal. I just loved him. <laughs> he was my man. And, uh, I remember when the body people came and got him. I remember telling my mother, that, that won't happen to me. And right before I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, the same thing almost happened to me. Again, I'm here by the grace of God. I had a son born in 1976, later that year. And maybe for about the first two or three months, maybe I was a decent father, maybe. I remember I used to put him on my back, put him on my back in one of these backpacks, and I used to ride him on my back. And I really bonded with him very, very well. Then I became irritable, restless, and discontent. And as a little boy, he'd come to the door, Daddy, Daddy, I'll, I'll be right back. But you and I know when we pick up the first drink, we don't know when we're coming back. And after a while, he stopped coming to the door. My descent was slowly going downhill. Now, in 1979, I had an opportunity that was incredible. There was a problem with the phone systems out in California, and they were looking for volunteers to go work in San Francisco. So I volunteered to go. I worked out in San Francisco from December of 79 to April 1st of 80. And I felt like I was in paradise. Because out there in San Francisco, you could buy booze in, 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 the, in the supermarket. In the candy store, you could buy booze everywhere. And out there, the Corbells was cheap, you know, the, um, the Hennessy and, and, and the wines, whatever, that wine country rapture, everything was cheap. And I stayed drunk. You know, and I came home by plane every, every, uh, every third weekend, they were flying me. I had a ride. I had a ride. Every third weekend, they, 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 I was going back and forth. And my, my coach ticket going, coming to New York, when I was going back to San Francisco at night, at 8.30, it became first class. Now, I don't know if any of you rode first class, but there's a lot of booze in first class. <laughs> you know, and man, I used to tell them, just line them up, man. And they used to almost have to carry me off the airplane. Literally carry me off the airplane. I'd be so messed up. I had a ride. I made so much money, they couldn't, even, they couldn't even time it in New York. They thought they was lying out there. I had, man, I was at the top, I was at the top of the world. So I came back home in 1980, and all that I'd saved, all that I'd done, just went to the door. Just went to the door. I mean, it was cascading further and further down. They would send me off on business trips, and I was a happy hour freak. I loved happy hour. You know, you can eat a, eat a few chicken bones and, you know, a few wings and whatnot, and drink to your heart's content. Now, when I go out on these escapades, 
I was set to learn something. But I never learned nothing. I would have to come back and, and scramble and, and read these books and, and, and get myself. Because when I, I never learned nothing when I was at the Street Board. They didn't learn nothing. They didn't learn nothing. I stay out. You know, and uh, my descent was very, very fast at the end. I started not paying rent. My rent got backed up. Uh, there were times when I had to run an extension cord out to the hallway to plug into them because they had turned my lights on. Very little food in the house. And I made a lot of money. Now at this time I was falling uphill. That means for some reason or another I was getting promotions. I was getting, I, I don't know, I don't know what they liked about me, but I mean, when I was there, I worked good, but when I was, a lot of times I wasn't there. And towards the end, a four-week vacation, I was out of vacation time around the end of March. Because I used it all up. You know, I couldn't get to work, so I would use it up. And uh, I remember them, them coming into, uh, them coming into work one day and telling me, uh, you got to go home. Because I remember that night got drunk coming in and laying down on, on, on the, uh, on the desk. The guy said, the only reason why we knew you were alive because we saw your nose flipping. And we saw you breathing. We thought you would die. When I came to a woman came, see, I, I came here to relieve you. You got to go home. And I said to myself, I'm going to straighten myself up. I was back drinking that night. Back drinking that night. Back drinking that night. Stuck. I never stopped. I couldn't stop drinking. The lights were getting turned out. The work was not getting paid. Very little food in the house. I become a manager at the phone company. I was even getting my phone shut off. Now, you know, when you get your phone shut off, you're in trouble. Man. I mean, you know, I call the business office and they, you know, I tell them, don't you know who I am and all this thing. They tell you, you told us that a month ago. Why don't you pay your bill? And I would wind up, you know, borrowing money from my mother. Well, my mother was a great neighbor. My apartment became my mother's old house. You know, when my mother went from my house to my house, I was like going to an old house. You know, she gave me couches and, and, and curtains. I didn't think necessary for me to buy them. It was good stuff. You know, that's how responsible I was. That's how irresponsible I had become. The duty of use of alcohol. There are many things that I can really tell you about my alcoholism. The blackouts, not finding a car, getting beat up in the bars, getting his gun stuck in my head. But I'll save you all that. It was just a descent into an absolute living hell. There were times when I would, I would say to myself, this is not right, I should go home. But as soon as I took a drink, it made everything all right when I was doing. Immediately. You know, what, what little sense of God that was still in me, I literally washed it down with booze. And after a while, whatever that was that was coming up, didn't come up anymore. I was just merely existing out there. Merely existing. You know, I heard it said you can be at the top rung of the ladder and you've never arrived. But each rung of the ladder that you come down, you become satisfied with you are. You become satisfied when you have holes in your shoes. You stitch your pants up just so that people don't see it. Baths of uh, cologne, you know, not soap and water, but just. If you scratch cologne, I, I must smell okay. My boss is going into the bathroom, knocking on the on the door. Aren't you? When you when you coming out of there? I go in there just to sit down, just to get maybe one minute sleep. 
It was, it was insanity. Absolute insanity. Well, that's what it was like. But let me tell you what happened. And what happened is the end mark of my whole story. Because if I just remember what happened, I don't have to worry about God. Because it was something that happened to me one Sunday morning and I had no power. I had taken a young man, maybe back from my house, a woman I brought to my house to seduce her. She started talking about how high power. And I said to my friends, what the hell did I, I said to myself, what the hell did I do this for? Now, what did I get myself in there? She said, you know, if you don't know how to pray, I'll pray for you. And she evidently did. I know my mother was praying full time. Well, I took her back to the Bronx and brought her home. I mean, came back home. And I went to sleep. Now, I didn't have no weird dreams. I didn't see no lights, no flashes. Nothing out of the ordinary. I came to that Sunday morning. And I just didn't want it. If an alcoholic of my type, just to make that statement, I'm not talking nothing short of the world. I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't even stop thinking about it. But what I thank God so much for is the immense amount of pain that was left in this week. Because that was the motivator. I went to my bosses that Monday morning and I said to him, I said, you know, Eddie, I said, I think, I think I'm losing my mind. And they said, we could have told you that a long time ago. What do you want to do about it? I said, I need help. Now, I thought I was going to go to a mental institution, padded walls, where they give you shock treatments. They took me right upstairs to the medical on 13th floor. No appointments, no nothing. Straight up the elevator. There was a guy named Dick, and I made rest in peace. It was an EAP. And he said, son, what's the matter? I said, I can't stop drinking. I don't know where the honesty came I never been to nobody that drink too much. He said, we're going to give you a set of questions that we'd like you to answer. We want you to be very truthful if you can be true. I got them all right. I got a hundred. <laughs> and he said, we want to send you away to a treatment center. And I said, well, wait a minute, I can't go right now. But I will go at the end of the week. He said, no. He said, we're going to send you just like you are. Go home, pack. Don't pack no, he's just send me straight here. I said, please. I gotta take care of some business. My wife had left me. My little boy had left me. Her job told me not to call her anymore. If they would, they would call the police on me. My mother, my mother hadn't heard from me about four or five days. And after about fifth or six days, she did call me. She said, I have to let you see your son. But I won't have anything else have to do with you again in life. And then she began to tell me what I was like in black house. How I wake up in the middle of the night screaming her and my son take off. And I can remember driving, you know, going to um, Manhattan, going over Long Island Express, Manhattan. I can remember saying I should go back, but I couldn't go back. I would go back, I'd go right to the bars, right to the after hour, try to go to work. I mean, it was just a constant cycle. I couldn't get out of it. But she said, I'll let you see over, I'll let you see your son at your mother's house, but I won't be there. And if I can remember the look I saw in my son's eyes, he's about, he's about four years old. I, I, I can't drink again a day at a time. I can't drink. But I saw a look of hope and despair. I saw me crying in his eyes. I can't describe it, but I, I just can't drink again a day at a time. I went to my friend Vinny's house. He said, get a shot of cognac. 
take a blow. And as soon as I did that, I did that. I don't care if she'll never come back. I had a good friend of mine that moved in with me, he was a coke dealer, and drinking and partying and all that stuff. But right in the midst of a lot of that, I, I began to cry. I remember Dick said, we're going to send you away to a treatment center. And I went that, I went that Saturday, Saturday morning. My mother and father drove me out to um, Pennsylvania. And I remember there was a little sign on the wall said, today is the first day for the rest of your life. And my mother's next statement was, you better pay attention that time. And I did. Not only was the gift given to me of the, of the mental obsession being taken away and the pain left to motivate me, but he also gave me another gift of surrender because when I got there, I never forgot. I think when I got there, I did tell him one time, I, I, I wanted to try to tell them how to run this place. They told me to sit down and shut up. <laughs> and they gave me a big book. Because everybody in that treatment center was an AA member. From the, all the way up from the gardens, all the way up down to the people around the place was an AA. And the thing about the big book that I, I'm going to talk about is that when I first began to read it, I would read a paragraph get what I read. I couldn't comprehend anything. I said, oh my God, I've ruined my brain. Now, I've gone back to school under the GI Bill and graduated from Queens College, and I believe I graduated the lowest person in my class. If anybody graduated lower than me, had to be an alcoholic or drug addict. I was right at the bottom. Just barely got out by the skin of my teeth. Just to satisfy a whim that I had and something that my mother wanted me to do. I remember going to college drunk. I used to go there and and, and, and try to see if I could comprehend with a buzz on, you know, that, that kind of nonsense. It was just insane. You know, and um, I would read that paragraph and I would forget what I read. I remember a counselor saying, well, start jotting down things as you read them. And then things began to come to me. But I'd read it and I'd forget. I'd read it and I'd forget. But I kept doing what they told me to do. I started to open up, I started to share. I started to listen to the people that came in with the AA meetings and I started to pay attention. I started to identify. We would go out to meetings in the, in the, in the, in the area and I would identify with them. And um, the last paragraph of chapter 3 in the middle. Kind of like the spiritual experience for me, it literally came off the page. It was almost as if it was being read to me. It says at certain times the alcoholic has no effective memory because against the first drink. In such rare cases, neither he nor other human being can reduce such a defense. That defense must come from a higher power. And my question at that point was to find that power. I've been a student of Big Book ever since. I got home, I went to my first, my first meeting with the Roseville Hospital, Winston Group on one side. They were slippers and robes, and the other side they were jumping up and down, having a good time. That was celebrating 10 years. I was in the right place. My wife said, you come out and visit us in Brooklyn, but you can't stay. So when I got out there, I went out there, I saw her and my boy had a nice bottom half of two fa uh, single family home. Bottom half of two family home, I might say. And uh, I told her, I'm in AA. She said, that's nice. <laughs> but you're not staying here. <laughs> and I cried all the way from Brooklyn back to Queens. I cried all the way back. But I didn't drink. 
I got rid of all the drug paraphernalia, I got rid of all the booze, all the vanilla extract, everything that pertained to alcohol in my house. And the guy that was staying with me, I said, you're going to have to move, my wife is coming back. No, I had no intention of coming back, so I had to lie to him. That wasn't me. That wasn't me doing that because I love partying. And I remember guys would run up to me in the street. They would say, hey, Dennis, you know, I got like that. And I'd say, I'm in the air. And they would just scatter. <laughs> just start running. Just start running. I mean, it was like I had this. It was unbelievable. I met my sponsor. And I love my sponsor. And my sponsor told me, he said, uh, he said, you're home. You don't have to suck anymore. And I have I haven't had my stu head stuck in any toilet bowls. I haven't urinated on myself. I haven't thrown up on myself. And I know I am right now. And a whole lot of my drinking, I know where I was. People had to tell me. He said there are 12 steps. You put these 12 steps in your life, you become a whole new person. After 90 days, he started carrying, carrying me around and speaking. At four months, he started carrying me around into, into institutions with him. Institutions with him, my saving grace. Service has been my saving grace. I know Tommy can speak on that. I know it. I know y'all can too. Because I know that. And I know everybody in here has probably had some, some sense of service. And my man George here. You know, we've been doing this for years. I know. Service has been my saving grace. Because that's what he was. He, I wanted to be like him so much I tried to outdo him. <laughs> I was taking commitments and going to this prison, going that way. I remember him taking me out to Raggers Island. I was about eight months sober. He said, I want you to dress up. I said, dress up to go to jail? <laughs> he said, yeah. Wear a suit and tie. And he took me out there. And when you get to Rikers Island, before you go across the bridge, there's a checkpoint. And when you get over the bridge, there's another checkpoint. Then when you take the bus out to the men's house of detention, there's another checkpoint. I said, damn, son, you do this every Sunday? He said, yeah. And he kind of gave me that look like you're going to be doing it too. <laughs> so I had my, my first institution meeting, I mean, where I, where I spoke. And it was one, one inmate, one correction officer, and my sponsor. It was the best meeting I ever had. Best meeting I ever had. Because when I came out of there, it was a bright Sunday morning. And I remember looking up in the sky and thanking God. I said, if you just... If I live a day at a time, you just allow me to breathe. I'll commit myself to this kind of work. And I haven't failed until this day. I haven't failed until this day. My commitment is to service and institutions. After a period of time, my wife invited me to stay overnight. And I go back to my sponsor and tell you to say, hey, thing is working. <laughs> he say, you're not here to get your wife back. You're here to stay sober. After 11 and a half months, she came back. I had nothing to do with it. I just didn't drink. I went to meetings. And I started working at alcoholics. I found out that my God heals in His time, not mine. My wife had a big job off, a big job change uh, almost 14 years ago down in Freehold. And she said, How would you like to come down and be getting the house down there? Here's a woman that wouldn't have anything else ever to do with me again in life. All because I don't drink. I go to meetings. I work with other alcoholics. Well, so the first step when we admit we're powerless over alcohol, our lives have become unmanageable. There's no doubt in my mind 
that my life was a manager. I lost my wife, I lost my family. I was about to lose my job. More than that, that I lost me. I'm able to see that. So our manageability wasn't really the question. You know, was, I really started to see that clearly that my life had been in the was chaos. Every day was anxiety. I know what alcohol did to me. It wound me up into a, a treatment center, which is really a nice name for a mental institution. <laughs> and, um, and I finally wanted, came, to, came to be aware of where I actually was. How did I find out if crowds were about? Well, the Bigfoot told me. Men and women often big for the effect of these crowds. Well, that's the way I drink. That's the way I drink. You know, uh, I identify with Bill's story. In chapter two on solutions, I identify with that, that one squiggly right where it says the alcoholic can't remember. The, the pain and suffering of day or week or month ago. Well, I identify with that. Because I remember myself on, 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 on ballroom, I mean, bathrooms and bars, and piss on my knees, puking in, 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 a, in a toilet bowl, getting up, saying, I'm not doing this no more. Go right outside that bathroom door and ask the bartender for a beer. Because in my drinking, I didn't think beer and wine was alcohol. I thought they were beverages. <laughs> you know, chasers. You know, that kind of thing. You know, and, uh, you know, the thing about it was, how do you a guy, friends of mine, just coming to the bar and he said to me, well, you're not drinking beer, I'm on the wagon. I'm drinking, I'm sitting there drinking beers, masses, rosé, and all kind of wine, I'm on the wagon. <laughs> you know, because in my drinking, when I really got serious drinking, it was Ron Rico 151, and, and bought the blue label logo through vodka. Powerless. Let me give you an illustration of how powerless I am over alcohol. My godmother, her, her, her uh, daughter, had invited me over to the Bronx. And she said to me, here's some um, strawberry punch. Now, West Indians have overproof rum they bring from the West Indies. Says, I believe if you pour it in a gas, if you pour it in a car, it makes it run. I believe the word will make it, it's like jet fuel. I mean, you can smell it throughout the whole house, but it's powerful. And what they do is they mix it with strawberry syrup. And she would hand me the glass, she said, now be careful, it's strong. And I sipped it, and I drank it, and I said, boy, this is good. Give me another one. She gave me another one. I sat down on the couch. About an hour and a half later, I came to and I said, what happened? And she was in the kitchen cooking. She said, I told you. And what was the first thing out of my mouth? Give me another one. <laughs> and she said, I'm not going to do it because you have to drive home. And I got a resentment. I got a resentment. And I got on my start journey. So I realized how powerful somebody. You know, when I read the story of Jay Walker, you know, how I identify, not being able to stop. No matter how much it hurts me, how much I hurt others, how much guilt, how much remorse, how much just insanity pervades my life, I inevitably go back to drink. Some days I don't want to drink. Not a cloud on the horizon. Not a cloud. This is a good day. Right away, I said, I gotta go to the bar. I need a drink. 
Oh, I see you need a drink. Today. Yeah, I do. Me. I'm going to get me a drink. And my intention was really to go in, maybe have a beer or, or, or one day. What was that thing the first thing I couldn't stop? They told me about that, and Dr. Pena had a physical allergy. A physical compulsion and a mental obsession. That when I face the first drink, it triggers the allergy, and I can't stop. I identified with that. My sponsor pointed these things out to me. I said, that's me. That's me. You know, we're more in alcoholism. You know, how I identified with the stories. How did I come to believe that Paul Gray and the story he said? Well, I came. After a period of time, I started to clear up. I came to. I think the turning point for me was the weed Gnostics. Because outside, I always, my concept of God was always outside. Always. But in there, it says, deep down every man, woman, child, the fundamental idea of God. You search for them, you'll find them. My God. And my sponsor said to me, he said, well, when you came to that Sunday morning, you didn't want it anymore. Who do you think that was? I haven't had a problem with God ever since. I know I didn't stop him. I know you didn't stop But you keep me stopped. Because that make meetings every day. Every day. That's the only thing with things my sponsor did tell me in the beginning too. He says, How often did you drink? I said, I drink every day. He said, Well, you go to meetings every day. <laughs> I said, I said, well, I've been doing it ever since. For some reason or another, and it fathoms me to even think about it, I never fought the program. In all my life, I fought everything. I fought everything and everybody. I thought during my training when I was a grad through Special Forces in Vietnam, I was taught any situation is just a situation and you're not supposed to be afraid. Well, that's, that's a lie. You get afraid when people shoot at you. <laughs> but, 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 I, but I tell you the truth, it's, it's, it's kind of like a brainwashing. And I always thought that I could stop myself. I would say when I'm 35, I'll quit. My son's next birthday. That's it. I mean it. 39th for sure. Come to find out. I didn't stop me. The power of greater myself stopped me. So like I said, I came to believe that power of greater can restore your sanity. In that, I wasn't repeating the same behaviors over and over and over again. I didn't like bars anymore. Look, you could have sent me mail to the bars in my neighborhood and so no matter how I was like, I'm not going to make that. That's how often I was there. But all of a sudden, I don't like bars anymore. I don't like being around people like that anymore. You know, and uh, I believe coming to meetings on a daily basis can restore the same. You know, because I go through emotional periods, I go through self induced drama. And, uh, in other days, they're just as incredible as they can be. April, April 1st, 2000, April 1st, 2002 this year, I retired from the phone company after 38 and a half years. The same job that was about to fire me 18 years ago is paying me tremendous pension today. 
fall through the grace of God in this incredible program. I remember my district secretary saying to me, she said, how did you know when to ask for help? Because they had you written up to be fired. I said, I don't know. I don't know. Now I know. Now I know. It wasn't me. It just wasn't me. Today my life is uh, almost beyond anything I could ever perceive. Except those days when I experienced self-induced drama. You know, a guy told me one time, he said, you know, it gets so good you won't believe it. And I believed him. And today, I really don't believe that there's much for me to do today. Um, I don't worry, really worry what God will for me today inside. I really don't worry about it. I just don't drink. I go to meetings. And I try to work with the suffering drunk. Especially those in the institution. I don't believe that God charges me, charges me with much. I don't believe He charges me with much. I think He just only just asked me to love today. Just love. I'm a fellow man. Do the best I can for him. Do the most I can for him. Be the best I be the best I can be for that day. And um, that's 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 all. I, mean, you know, I don't have that anymore. I'm pretty to today I'm pretty content with myself. Really content with myself today. It took me a long time to get there. It took me a long time to get there, but I'm content. And all I can say, if you're new, if you're coming back, this is the joy of it. This is the joy. The joy is in the, the joy is in the steps. The joy. All the answers are right here in this book. I'm just so happy to have a, a service sponsor, and a sponsor who believes in this book, a sponsor that really just showed me a new way of life. That's basically what he did. You know, uh, again, I want to thank Mike. I want to thank the Carrots Message Group. And I look forward to uh, coming here the next three weeks. All I have, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a professor. All I have is my own experience and I hope on each step and that's what I intend to share with you. So God bless you and thank you for allowing me to be here.